This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 16. This is Writing Excuses, Poetic Structure, Part 2. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. I'm Amal. I'm Howard. And uh, so last week in part one of this, Amal led us through talking about poems that had structures. And this week she has promised to talk to us about things that do not have a structure, um, which is very exciting to me because I see words in your outline that uh, make me so happy, like the word short story. So talk to me about this. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so last week I was talking about <clears throat> essentially explicit structures, the structure that, you know, you have a form that's kind of like a container and you are pouring your poetic genius into that container and it's taking on that shape. So something that has a rhyme scheme, something that has um, a specific uh, meter or something like that. These are received structures that you are using to shape your poem. And they can be very useful and they can be paradoxically very liberating because once you have eliminated the need to kind of figure out the shape of the thing, sometimes it can be easier to just write a thing. But that said, there are tons of ways to structure poems that don't actually involve following um, a specific schematic for the poem. Um, and that's what I want to talk about this week. So it's not so much that things don't have a structure, so much as that the structure is implicit instead of explicit. And that the structure is more of an organizing principle, more of a logic, than it is uh, an actual schematic or blueprint for producing a poem, the way that we talked about memes last week. Um, So I want to um, talk about this uh, a little bit the way, so the the thing that Mary Robinette was saying was exciting. To me, this is how I think about short stories a lot of the time, Um, that I, if I think to myself, I want to tell a story about um, someone who is experiencing a, a kind of fracturing of identity or something that is, you know, breaking them up inside in some way. I might want to take that theme and reflect it in the form of the story. I might want to tell the story itself in fragments. Um, and that's the kind of logic that I'm talking about here for a poem, where instead of, you know, fitting your meaning into a received set of forms, you instead let the thing that you want to talk about suggest a shape, suggest a form um, that uh, that may or may not actually interact with the way that you're writing the poem. Um, I don't know if you guys actually write short stories this way, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> is that actually familiar or is that totally uh, off the wall? I, I mean, it depends for me on the short story. Um, which is, I suspect, like, so is that the way you write poetry? Uh, that, that it depends on the poem and, and the constraints and the, the mood of the, the moment. Yes. Um, so sometimes I'm extremely structured with my stories, and sometimes I am much more explorational. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that you can take the form that one thing tends to have. I, I find that a lot of the time when we teach, um, 
when we teach short stories uh, or when we teach story structure, we end up reaching for the structure of other media. We mm-hmm. might reach for, you know, um, the three act structure of a film um, or at least use it to kind of bounce different structures off of and stuff like that. Um, and similarly, like there are um, a couple of poems that I, I really want to share with people, not by reading them out on, on the podcast specifically, but perhaps in show notes. Um, there is a poem by Sophia Samatar called Girl Hours, which is stunningly beautiful. I adore it completely. It's about Henrietta Swan Levitt, um, who I'm mm. sure Mary Robinette knows about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so about um, uh, the, the fact that Girl Hours was um, a way of talking about the length of a project, essentially, because women were computers um, who were crunching numbers all the time. And so any kind of project that involved doing that was reckoned in girl hours. And so Samatar has written this tremendous poem about Henrietta Swan Levitt and, um, uh, and, and her life and her work. But the form that she's chosen to do that in is the form of a standard essay. So the way that an essay would um, have uh, an introduction, a body, a conclusion, and notes, um, she has taken those elements of uh, of an essay and used them to structure this poem instead. Uh, so, but she's also turned it around. She's also made it backwards. Um, which for reasons that are in the poem, it opens with notes that start in prose saying in the 1870s, the Harvard College Observatory began to employ young women as human computers to record and analyze data. One of them, Henrietta Swan Levitt, discovered a way to measure stellar distances using the pulsing of variable stars. Then it goes into the conclusion and instead it, the shape of it is totally transformed. You were not the only deaf woman there. Annie Cannon, too, was hard of hearing. On the day of your death, she wrote, rainy day pouring at night. And then it just kind of goes on from there. It's this tremendous poem that I cannot enough recommend. Um, but it it takes as its structure something that is very much not a poem mm. and then incorporates it into the poem to reflect on many of the themes that are present in the poem. You know, I had a fun fun experience about a week ago as of the time of this recording. Uh, Sandra and I sat down to watch a a movie called Along with the Gods, which is a Korean film that's sort of a fantasy afterlife epic thing. And we were about 15 minutes in. It's uh, uh, subtitled, not dubbed. We were about 15 minutes in. I don't speak a word of Korean. We were about 15 minutes in when suddenly... I realized, oh, wait a minute, none of the cadence of the voices tells me this, none of the subtitles tells me this, but this is about 15% comedy. And suddenly I had to rewrite in my head all of the receipt, all of my receipts for lines of dialogue. And it completely Mm -hmm. changed my understanding of what was happening. And so this idea that, uh, that an implicit form mm-hmm. uh, can, you know, can change the message. The the person receiving the poem has to know the form. Mm-hmm. You have to have you have to have that piece. Um, I'm not regretting my experience at all. It was a, it was great fun. Um, but I love the 
I love the idea that form is that important and that sometimes we rely on it without knowing it. So here's what I hope is a really great example of what you're talking about. And Amal, if I'm totally off base, just shut me up. Uh, but the TV show WandaVision is yes. doing this and doing this brilliantly because what they are trying to tell is a story about a woman who is searching for a family and trying to build and find a family. And so they are using these received forms of sitcom structure. And they're going throughout, you know, every episode is a different kind of sitcom model from a different period of history. But they are very specifically doing detailed pastiche of family sitcoms like Bewitched and like Donna Reed Show and Dick Van Dyke and Brady Bunch and all these things. Because within that form, they are able to tell all of these extra facets of family life and what is perceived as normal what we expect to have because we've seen it on TV. And there's all these layers because of the form they're using. I, I'm literally covered in full body chills as you brought <laughs> up that example, because it is everything that you said. And I'd argue it's even more than that in that one of the things about WandaVision and zero spoilers, obviously, because it's, it's magnificent and really should be experienced in the form that it has chosen, which is, Mm -hmm. The weekly episode, <laughs> um, it is doing something extremely brilliant, uh, which is that it's not just about a woman wanting a family. It's about a woman processing enormous grief. Yes. And within the context of the past year that we've all lived through, one of the ways that people have been managing their situation, reckoning with their grief has been through binge watching television. Mm -hmm. Wait, what? I know. <laughs> Shocking. Shocking revelation. So, so confusing. But this is the, the to, for it to be about a relationship between grief and television, but also to forestall the ability to binge it. You can't binge this show unless you wait for it to be over and then binge it. You have to actually experience it one week at a time. The way that the sitcoms that it is engaged with um, are doing is a brilliant use of form to both like to, to engage and transform the thing that it's about and to use things like commercial breaks to explore these different elements of uh, of everything mm -hmm. that the meat of the show is about. It is doing that that show genuinely feels like poetry to me in the way that it has layered meaning on meaning on meaning yes. within the structure that has taken for itself. Well, and uh, the, is... the moment for me when it moved from a thing I really love to a thing that I consider to be genius mm -hmm. is when Wanda wants to avoid an argument and so she rolls credits. Yes. And Vision has to chase her into the next room. He's like, no, this isn't over. You have to talk to me. And the way that it uses that form, though, to go back to what Howard was saying about how you kind of have to know the form, uh, my children completely bounced off of this show <laughs> because they did not grow up with the Dick Van Dyke show. And right. so episode one meant nothing to them. So harking back yeah, to, to, to last episode, uh, they were missing the meme. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. Um, let's let's take a moment and pause for our book of the week, which is The Space Between Worlds by which Amal has recommended. <laughs> 
Yes. So um, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing uh, her name. It's Micaiah Johnson or Micaiah Johnson. I'm not sure because I've never heard it spoken. I apologize if that is not correct. Um, but uh, The Space Between Worlds is a magnificent book. Um, and talking of pandemic stuff and uh, our processing thereof, this was the the first book that really enabled me to read again last year. I, um, I've, I've observed that lots of people fell into different camps of either you know, uh, reading a lot more than they normally did or reading a lot less than they normally did to manage the situation. For me, I basically lost the ability to read for about three months. And the book that snapped me out of that was The Space Between Worlds. Um, it is about it's it's high concept science fiction. Um, it is the the premise is that someone has figured out how to uh, access hundreds of um, alternate realities. But the in order to go to that alternate reality, in order to actually be there, you cannot have a version of yourself alive there. So people who the, the people who become traversers, as they're called, the people who are actually able to do this are people whose lives are so contingent and vulnerable and volatile mm. that the fact that they have survived into adulthood is basically a miracle and they can go to all of these other worlds. So the uh, protagonist, Kara, uh, is someone who is only alive in seven worlds out or eight worlds, seven or eight worlds, I can't remember, um, out of like over 300. And so as a consequence, she's able to go to these other worlds. And wow. there, it is so pacey and action-packed and also gorgeously written. Um, I, I just, I, I think the phrase that I've used to talk about it in reviews is that it, it basically, you know, just lit me on fire from within. It flooded me with gasoline and struck a match. It just suddenly I could experience color and heat and wonder again. Um, I just love this book so, so much. And I really want everyone to read it. That sounds amazing. So that's The Space Between Worlds by Micaiah Johnson. Yes. Oh, so good. Um, so I I have a question, and and I, I hope this doesn't take us too far out, of course, but one of the things, as you've been talking, that I was thinking about is, um, you know, is the, the poem that we have all just heard, which is Amanda Gorman's The Hill We Climb, that yeah. she read on, on the inaugural day of inauguration. Um, and and like I'm in awe of that kind of poetry because it is not a structured poem. Mm -hmm. um, I the only poetry that I have really written as an adult uh, has has generally been in service of of a novel. One of which was um, in Valor and Vanity. I, Lord Byron was a character. Mm -hmm. I needed him to recite some poetry that he had written. Um, about about glamour, which is clearly not a poem he has ever written. So to do that, I took one of his poems and I used that as my structural template. Mm -hmm. I understand how to do that. I understand how to inter interrogate the text and figure out why he was placing the line breaks where he placed them, why he was, you know, I understand how to do that. I don't understand when we're looking at this, this implicit form with poetry, mm -hmm. how to... Um, to articulate and and go after the structural goals of the language mm. you know the the like what so when we're talking about this implicit structure like how do we what are we what are we what am i doing <laughs> <laughs> so like with a short story 
obviously there are lots of variables there, right? But um, I love what you're describing about what you did with a Byron poem. Because, so, I mean, can I ask, how did you choose the Byron poem that you chose? Um, I looked for something that was at least thematically linked to the topic and and the mood that I wanted him to be de- going through mm-hmm. um, so that uh, that there would be um, so that I guess that tonally it was still it was it was in the right ballpark for what I was mm-hmm. going for um, and and I wanted to be able to kind of retain as much of the original structure as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that was, I looked at a lot of Byron poems, um, mm-hmm. but that was, that was both, mostly what I was looking at was, was the emotional tone. Right. So similarly, I think that, um, when you want to be writing something that is, uh, that is following again, like a certain organizational principle, there's going to be a certain amount of chicken and egg in terms of, you know, figuring out, uh, what poem you want to write on this theme versus um, what what theme this structure suggests and stuff mm. like that. There's some back and forth there. But in terms of like, how do you do it? Um, so specifically I, like with, with unstructured things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, with unstructured things, a lot of things come into play. And uh, I love that you brought up Amanda Gorman's poem because a great deal of um, a great deal of what's going on in that poem is the room she allowed herself for its performance. If you see that poem on the page, it's experienced very, very differently than mm. when she reads it. Um, and a big, and I don't just mean in terms of like you know her charisma and her her right. ability to perform it. I mean the um, there is a lot of internal rhyme in that poem. Uh, and if you don't, and it's internal rhyme that you won't notice on the page because it's not structured with line breaks where those rhymes are. They are they're occurring um, almost like commas in a sentence, mm-hmm. right, those rhymes. Um, there's a layering that's happening. I would also argue that like the, the layering that's happening with those rhymes is not dissimilar to building a ladder on a hill that one might climb, for instance. Like there mm-hmm. is a kind of upward motion in that poem that follows. So the, the form of it is sort of following the function of it, is following it. the uh, idea of it. But those are kind of day brain concerns, right? Those are kind of um, structural, thoughtful, logic-based elements that you're bringing to something which in its conception tends to be a bit more numinous and a bit Mm. more strange. So I want to give a different example of a poem that I think is um, essentially exploding a certain structure in order to to build itself out from it. Um, This is possibly possibly the kindest, most generous poem I've, I've yet read. I love it so much. It's by Caitlin Boulding and it's called um, Questions to Ask Yourself Before Giving Up. And it's a bit too long to read on the podcast, but what I want to say about it is that it was sparked, uh, as the, the biography says, it appeared in Guts magazine, um, and I'm sure we will link to it. But there was a, um, a certain text that began to be circulated, I think, on Tumblr, uh, that was a series of questions to a kind of self-care checklist, essentially. And it goes like this. It goes, are you hydrated? If not, have a glass of water. Have you eaten in the past three hours? If not, get some food, something with protein, not just simple carbs, perhaps some nuts or hummus. 
Have you showered in the past day? If not, take a shower right now. So Caitlin Boulding encounters that article um, and explodes it. And what I mean by that is if you take that, just that first line, are you hydrated if not have a glass of water? What she does is, are you hydrated? When did you last glut your thirst with a handful of spring? Have you Mm. eaten anything besides emails or your fingernails in the last three hours? Have you pulled the protein out of an oak tree or palmed an avocado pit this month? And she just takes these straightforward questions and embroiders them and builds them outwards and elaborates on them. She takes them and she, to return to a previous episode, she sings them in a Mm. way. Mm. Um, And it feels to me very much like she's taken that checklist, which was the source of some controversy. I remember at the time, this was several years ago, but I remember uh, this, this checklist kind of being derided by a lot of people and not unjustly in terms of, you know, this is not how you solve depression. You cannot solve depression in this way. But in different contexts with different degrees of uh, distress, you know, this may be helpful to someone essentially. And what Caitlin Boulding does in, in the biography, I think she says specifically that she wrote this poem for a friend uh, going through a difficult time. That checklist becomes transformed into, into a gift. It's like, it's like taking, it's like taking yarn and knitting it right? It's like taking some kind of initial fiber form of something and build it, using it as material to build something else. Um, uh, Mary Robinette and I have both talked in the past about times when we've just needed to fall back on craft in mm-hmm. order to get something done. And without the assist of an external large structure, it's difficult to fall back on craft. Um, I think part of the answer, Mary Robinette, that you may be looking for lies in the microstructure of some of these poems, the mm-hmm. opportunity to, uh, to use an internal rhyme, the opportunity to use something that sounds like two lines of a sonnet because they have the same meter. Um, uh, as I, as I listened to, um, as I listened to the, the hill we climb um, at the inauguration, I kept hearing chunks of forms uh, in in the presentation, um, and that's not to say that that's not to say that that's how it was composed. Um, but I think with a lot of these uh, formless or you know with with absent and outlining form uh, poems you will find lots of these little forms on the inside. And Mm -hmm. so as I've done with, uh, for myself, when I'm trying to write humor, coming up with a list of tools, things that I know how to do. Oh, I know how to, I know how to say teenage mutant Ninja turtles (laughs) with Wikipedia titles. Um, You know, I know how to do all of these things. You make a list of these tools and you set it in front of you. And then you take your topic and now you might have the pieces you need to fall back on craft and write a formless poem that is borrowing from a dozen different forms at once. Well, this yeah. is actually, a, you know, you've, you've hit on a much more succinct way, I think, of, um, of talking about, like, how do you do the, the, the poem that has a non-traditional form? And it's basically that you invent a form for it. 
Um, you can, uh, I'm, I'm reminded here, Shwetanarayan, who I have mentioned before, has a stunning poem called The Bone Harp Sings Nine Moods. And to write that poem, what they did was uh, they they took a fairy tale, which is like the, the bonnie swans or the, the cruel sister. Um, it's a, the tale type where one sister um, murders another because of some jerk. Um, but anyway, uh, took that basic story template and um, took the fact that there is a harp in that story and thought, what if I transported that story, not from a European setting, but like transposed it into um, an Indian setting via the medium of Carnatic music? So what Shweta ended up doing was structuring the poem in nine sections uh, to reflect different ragas, essentially, like different mm. um, different. Uh, musical modes in Carnatic music and had each one title the section. Um, and then in within each of those sections has a very free verse uh, engagement with the meat of the story of that fairy tale, essentially, that they were retelling. But it's structured within this totally other context now of, of ragas and of the different moods that a different raga refers to. Uh, and as a consequence, you've got this like multi-vocal poem that isn't in a strictly speaking recognizable form, but is very, very structured, nevertheless, very, very formed. This is this is all incredibly interesting. Um, I, I've I've let us run long because it because of all of like I I just want to keep you to keep unpacking things, <laughs> but I, I know that we have um, we have homework and we have two more episodes in in this. Topic. So, uh, and your homework, I think, is going to give us some exercises to actually try and, and take some stuff out for a spin. So will you tell yeah. us? Absolutely. So today's exercise um, involves basically writing a poem inspired by the thing you've chosen to structure it. And I want to make this easier. I'm going to use the medium of the numbered list. Okay. So I want you to take a numbered list of things and use that numbered list to write a poem inspired by the list and also organized according to that list. And if that seems complicated, let me unpack it. Um, consider, for instance, if you used uh, the four cardinal directions. So you have um, the form that I am giving you is one north, two south, three east, four west, and use each one of those headings to write a piece of a poem that is going to make a whole that is in some way involved with North, South, East, and West. But once you have those four directions, you can apply them to whatever you want. Um, do you want to make it relevant to a map, to some geography? Do you want to make it relevant to the body with like North as the head and South as the feet? Um, do you want to make it be about a compass? So having that numbered list of four things should be a springboard for you to then uh, write a poem about something related to that list. Some other examples can include uh, the elements, um, four or five, depending uh, according to whichever tradition you choose. The periodic table might be slightly too long for your purposes, or the three laws of thermodynamics, or the neighborhoods in a city, or anything else that you make up. It just has to be a numbered list where each number is the heading to a different section. Ah, this is great. Thank you so much, Mel. Uh, this has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, 
and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.